welcome to Behind the Biography. I'm your host, Joe Thompson, pronouns he and him. And this week we're joined by special guest, Ryan Valdez. Ryan is a STEM career and academic mentor who advises students on development strategies for their future employment and the university application process. He is a graduate of Texas A&M University, a quick gigum, and after graduation, he pursued his master's at Yale University and his PhD in environmental science and policy from the nearby George Mason University. He has since assumed the title of Director of Conservation Science and Policy at the National Parks Conservation Association. Regularly, he engages students in conversations on topics of conservation, science, and policy. And our Envision Scholars will be able to share in that experience this summer at our Global Young Leaders Conference in Washington, DC. But today we have the privilege of spending some time with him uh, and talk a little bit about his many outdoor experiences. So Ryan, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome, Ryan. I, I um, am thrilled to be able to have you on the podcast. I know um, in doing some research with our research team, I've, I've had quite the pleasure um, diving into some of your endeavors and really look forward to talking about some of those things here today. Um, I'd like to start by um, asking a little bit about um, your thoughts on Envision. I believe this is your first, maybe second opportunity coming in and working with our students. What are some of the things that our students can be excited about um, hearing from you this summer? Well, Joe, I was really excited to learn about Envision. It is one of those things that I really wished I had at my disposal when I was starting out. Um, it is a brilliant, brilliant uh, endeavor. And I think it's really transformative. Um, you've obviously seen this through the careers of your students and what, what they share, what they learn. So to be a part of that really was very exciting for me because it's, it's the place I wanna be, you know, where, where the good stuff is happening. Okay. Um, and okay. when I think about all the things that I've been through, uh, there's, a lot of stories to share, a lot of experiences to share. Um, and I, I really do believe that a lot of the things that I've learned along the way I can hopefully pass on. And it's, it's not one of those situations where you say, you know, I'm going to spare you a lot of time and grief if you only do these three things, because I have a feeling we all have to go through it no matter what. But there are things that we can learn and it's mostly going to be in that arena of just being open, listening, participating, and being brave, just going for it. And so I, I hope I can share some of that with, with your students. Perfect. And, and thank you for your, your answer and response. I know our students and staff will be sharing in that same level of excitement, um, especially to hear from some newer speakers um, to that particular program is going to be great. Um, I do think it's important um, before we kind of dive in and talk a little bit about you and in order to, you know, go behind the biography with you, behind the biography with you a little bit, we have to talk about your passion for nature, the, out, the greater outdoors and conservation. So what ignited that particular passion of yours? Well, I think for many, this is a, a hard question to answer because, you know, so many things come to mind, but I'm going to have to put the blame on a couple of high school teachers that managed to just get their <laughs> classes outside on field trips. And I think this is a hard thing for teachers to do today, which is really unfortunate because of budgetary constraints. But I tell you, it's a game changer. It was the best thing that they could have ever done for me. And it wasn't just these wild landscapes, you know, that were inspiring, but it was being in a place like a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service refuge or any kind of reserve, a park, where you're seeing the staff at work. And, you know, 
I would be that student who was always up front talking to the teachers on the bus or I'm that annoying student who stays after class to ask more questions. So that's kind of <laughs> where I'm coming from. But my attention was always on the people, what they were doing, what tools they had, you know, and I really admired that they were educated. They had discipline. They were trusted and respected. And these are things that I really valued. I looked up to my, my high school teachers and it was a geography teacher and my ecology teacher. And both of them just really did an amazing job in my opinion. Um, so, you know, when we're at the refuge on these field trips, you see people with these jobs outdoors and, and on top of that, they're scientists. And so I think that really sealed the deal for me because from an early age, I just always respected science as a discipline, even though I didn't un understand it. It just seemed like one of those things that was really cool and adventurous. And if I had ever met anyone that had studied anything and had traveled, to me, that was quickly someone I wanted to hang around with. And so both of my high school teachers were those people. And uh, so it's really all their fault. <laughs> so I'm hearing where the outdoors passion and love came from. I'm also hearing where some of the abroad kind of passions and experiences are coming from kind of in that same answer a little bit. Um, and I know in some of your background in reading a little bit about you, you worked for the World Bank, which I'm sure would have given you exposure to a number of different countries abroad. Um, can you talk a little bit about your time as a consultant with the World Bank? Sure. Um... My time with the World Bank was also in coordination with the Smithsonian Institution. So it was kind of a joint effort. But that particular job was really to help generate science-based mapping tools that would serve the greater Amazon Basin countries. It was designed to help inform you know, development decision-making. And you know, to this day, it remains a serious challenge for the Amazon to be managed as a a whole and intact system as in, instead of, you know, each of the eight nations individually. But that was kind of a mind blowing experience for me because that was my first real international job. And it wasn't to one country. It was to eight nations that were all monster powerhouses in the biodiversity world, you know, especially big countries like Brazil and Peru. Colombia, I mean, incredible resources, incredible culture. You know, there are over 400 indigenous tribes in the Amazon. So here you are working. And again, it's not the landscape that's so amazing. It's the people, those people in the Amazon who are doing this on a day to day basis. They speak multiple languages. You know, they jump around from one important meeting to another. You know, they're they're making decisions. They're they're meeting with other global leaders. And it's, it was just, you know, really a remarkable opportunity. But it's not something that I I want to say I earned. It was it was an opportunity that came upon me that I took advantage of. And so, you know, they say there's no such thing as luck. You know, luck is opportunity meets preparedness mm -hmm. or so on. And. I really do feel that that was the case because when these things come in front of you, you're either able to take it and run or you can't. And so I was just mm -hmm. fortunate enough to be surrounded by really remarkable scientists and conservation leaders. And one of them decided to take a chance, <laughs> give me a, a new kind of job opportunity. Um, and then, you know, went from there. So, but the World Bank most certainly is one of many kinds of institutions that make massive changes to people's lives at a very large scale. And it was just, it was almost overwhelming, but a remarkable experience indeed. That is amazing. And I can only imagine some of the things, people, places, uh, low, uh, buildings that you've had the opportunity to, to marvel at it, even with those eight different uh, countries and nations that you mentioned there. Pardon me. Um, so really quickly, 
how does your time at say Texas A&M spending time at Yale um, and then, you know, some of the time and then the PhD experience that you had with George Mason University, how do those experiences prepare you for the opportunity that you were able to take advantage of, like this, you know, consultant opportunity with the World Bank? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. And I guess I would normally want to say that there is a direct connection, but I'm not sure that there is. And I, I let me explain what I mean by saying that. The academic sure. experience is unique. And each of those institutions that I had the privilege to attend were each of them, you know, really remarkable experiences for me, really different, each, each one. But again, it goes back to the people. When I was in high school, it was my high school teachers that empowered me to look for things beyond high school. When I was at Texas A&M, you know, I befriended a teacher who ultimately got, you know, an opportunity door open for me to work with endangered species. I was helping trap wolves in Minnesota with a really amazing team of people. That opportunity led to an empowered application to attend Yale University. And all those accumulated experiences then, you know, allowed me to branch off enter the Smithsonian Institution for 10 years and then go back to school for a PhD. So they were all holding hands, you know, all this long line of experiences. And I think just holding on tight is the secret to all of those things. Because if you let your hand go and you let opportunities go, you know, that that is a big price to pay. You don't know what you might be missing out on. And so the academic experience is, is very powerful and important to what happens later. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that it's the, the humans in those institutions that are your secret to success. It's not the degree per se. Uh, it's certainly not the content that you can always go back and review on Wikipedia or whatnot. But it's it's the, the, the teachers, the relationships you had, because ultimately, you know, getting a job or getting an opportunity is not going to be as much about your qualifications as it is about how you portray yourself and whether you're someone that someone wants to hire. Are you confident? Are you capable of communicating? Can you write well? These are things that don't necessarily come from the school experience, but if you have good mentors and good champions at your back, you know, they're going to tell you those things. And those are the things that we need to hear because Absolutely. the lessons that you don't learn in school, you get from the humans, but it's, it's the whole combination. Um, I will say this though. I love academia because it's just this, really cool place to learn stuff. You know, it's that simple. And when you're on a job, you don't learn as much as you think you would like to on a daily basis. You're focused on that job. So when you're in school, like really enjoy it because it's not going to be the same when you leave, you know? Uh, and so I absolutely love being in places where I can learn a lot. I like being around people that know a lot more than me. And that's, that's a lot of people. So you always want to be in that position where you can look outward, you know, in awe and just kind of, if you can always live there, that's a pretty cool place to live. So I, that's why I kept going back to school, Joe, honestly, it's not because I needed, you know, like one more degree, but I just love learning. I think if there is a degree after a PhD, I, I might consider it just for the fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> we need more inspirations like you to, to be able to say those words so confidently and so passionately, um, because we're going to have students who are going to be afraid of being career 
academics and who will be afraid of pursuing, you know, postgraduate academia because what they're what they believe is it's time to go to school to get a job and let's get into the workforce and move forward when there's so much for us to learn and so many opportunities for us to do so. And I, I want to talk a little bit about an opportunity that you've actually been able to provide some of the students at one of your alma maters, George Mason University. Um, you have a study abroad program that you uh, founded in 2010, the Kenya Study Abroad Program. Could you talk to us a little bit about that program and how you've been able to, you know, bring your passion for travel and, you know, give other students an opportunity to do so as well? Sure, Joe, thank you for that. And it, it kind of happened in a strange serendipitous way because I was originally planning to do my PhD work in the Amazon, because this is where I had experience, I had contacts, and, you know, I'll spare you the details, but that didn't work out. And I was already one year in to my PhD and that fell through. Um, and, you know, you just got to work with what you have. And I started to think like, well, great, this is now falling apart. I was really scared. Um, I didn't know what to tell my committee. You know, I have to deal with an advisor and these people are waiting for me. Um, so. I really thought about what was most meaningful to me. And I had never been at this point to Africa. It was like one of those places you just dream about as a child. And I know they say that, you know, TV is not good for kids, but TV is actually where I got some of my original inspiration by watching the very first nature-based program ever, which is Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Now this goes back to the seventies. So, you know, I'm throwing my age up into my face here. <laughs> But this show <laughs> was pretty amazing because here you have two guys. One of them is this educated leader in conservation, you know, Marlon Perkins, and he's driving around in the vehicle and he's got this guy with him, Jim Fowler, who is kind of like the sidekick, if you will. And they just drive around in these wild landscapes. Mm -hmm. And then he points out something, you know, some cool animal and Jim jumps out of the truck and wrestles it. And then they just talk about, you know, the biology and the natural history. And I was glued to that thing as a kid. So here we are present day, you know, my PhD is not going well. I'm losing this opportunity. And I thought, that's it. I'm just going to do it somehow in East Africa. And this is where having friends in the right places really helps because I knew someone who had worked in East Africa and particularly Kenya. We put together a trip. I said, just get me over there. Let's, let's go check it out. There happened to be one little research station that was in Kenya from the Smithsonian. And I quickly used that to justify the trip. Like that's it. For some reason, that's where I'm supposed to go. And so all of a sudden, here we are traveling to Kenya and I show up on this landscape. And I, I tell you this, Joe, seriously, this, it was, just like my hometown in South Texas, the landscape itself, the vegetation, wow. the grass, you know, the acacia trees, you know, the only difference is, you know, you have these big elephants and giraffe and other things there. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> sure. but the place looked and it felt right. And I met some of the leaders at the research center and just within minutes I had made up my mind. Somehow in some way, this is where my PhD will be. And so I started to put together a program at that point. Now I needed a way to get there. And it's very expensive doing international mm -hmm. studies. So I thought, oh, study abroad, you know, they, they know what they're doing. They, they travel a bit. I went and talked to somebody mm -hmm. there and I said, what do you think about my teaching a study abroad class? Yeah, in a place that I don't really have any experience, um, you know, for your program. <laughs> And they were brave and they said, you know, well, you've been there once or twice, so let's take a chance. And I had my first program, took 10 students with me and we had this amazing time. It flooded so badly on this whole trip everywhere we went, but they were a good sport. And, uh, oh, no. <laughs> but that was it. After that, I went every year in January to Kenya, taking students with me. And so what started out 
really is a self-serving exercise to get me back and forth to Kenya really was eye-opening for me because I had no idea how transformative that experience was for students that had never even been on an airplane. And all of a sudden, they're showing up in Nairobi with me. You know, their lives are in my hands. And it's like, oh my God, this is, the, the bar has been set high, you know, I, so I really have to bring it. And, uh, and so the more I went, you know, the more friends I met, the more people I became connected to. And as it is now, I really know a lot of folks there amazing people that welcomed us and showed us around and it was not just the wildlife again it was the culture it was what it's like being a local having yamachoma on the side of the street which is a barbecue there's you know just the colors of all mm -hmm. the tribal groups that it are there. Delicious, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's hearing you know over 40 different languages that we're not used to being in america you know we're lucky if we get two or three and it's it's that kind of influence that was so incredible that even after I finished my PhD, I kept doing it. I kept taking students there because it just felt good. It was really rewarding for me. It was v sometimes life changing for these students. Um, you know, we'd we'd be out on the the Maasai Mara and they would see this beautiful sunset coming down behind an acacia tree, and I would get the you know, oh my God, this is just like the Lion King. And I would have to stop him and say, um, it's actually the other way around. You know, the Lion King is like this. <laughs> this is actually what's real. And, uh, and it just makes me realize that all of their perceptions about nature and culture and the rest of the world come from movies and TV. So study abroad, I, I can't, you know, support it enough. It is just such a tremendous way to educate yourself about the world. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, if possible, I'd like to ask you two quick questions about uh, the experience overall, if, if I may. Um, one question about the students is there, I hear the impact on them and the lasting effects it can have on them, but do they have an opportunity to impact uh, the locals there in Kenya or the, the area as it as it is? And then for you, knowing that you've been going kind of year over year, how has that shaped your approach to educating? Sure. So I can't say that the students are contributing, if you will, you know, to the conservation going on in Kenya directly. But being a tourist, obviously you're bringing in economy, but you're also bringing in a, a way of thinking and a perception. And you are, whether you like it or not, an ambassador of your country. <laughs> that can be either a good thing or a oh, really yeah. bad thing because, you know, we've seen it all. But you can rest assured, Joe, that I have a very thorough orientation for my program and my students are well behaved. They are well aware of, you know, the cultural norms. We are incredibly respectful and polite and courteous and inclusive when we go there. And I think that helps in some way to prepare a lot of the conservation leaders as to what kinds of people are having these experiences and taking them back with them. So I wanna say that there is a mutual kind of cultural exchange, if you will, in some capacity. Um, and then of course, we are very careful about who we choose to work with, who the safari outfitters are, what places we stay in, whether we're using a local as a guide. You know, we go through all of these very deliberate choices to make sure that we are hopefully part of the solution and not part of the problem. Um, there are a lot of abuses of power and privilege when it comes to tourism. And so, you know, we want to be aware of that. But I just really absolutely love the interaction I see with students and the locals. Um, or just very simple things of the students seeing, you know, a truly wild animal for the first time in their lives. 
of that caliber. You know, when you see a pride of lions, your mouth just kind of drops or or it's the opposite. You don't even realize what you're looking at. It just looks fake. <laughs> you know, like where do they put the animals at night? You know, these poor things are just out here in the landscape. Um, but it's a, it's a really good mutual, you know, relationship, I would I would hope. And uh, the beautiful thing about Kenya is that, you know, everyone there speaks English. So that's very helpful. Um, it's, it's basically the, the second national language outside of Kiswahili. But so it's easy for students to build up enough courage to ask for things. Normally, they'll always come to me for every little conceivable thing. And it's like, I don't know what's for dinner. You got to go and ask the cook, you know, go introduce yourself. Right, right. And you, you, exactly. know, you, might, you might learn something new. But that is helping students kind of break the ice as far as being brave enough to talk to other humans. And that's one of the most important things that can come out of study abroad is just ask, engage, participate. And it will just be a completely different experience as opposed to just observing. So I think I veered off track a bit there on your question, but uh, no, that <laughs> was tried to learn both. No, ways. that was that that was great. Again, and, and in terms of the impact, it's it's really really important to know that you know the the building of interpersonal skills is is a global scale and it's a two way street, especially for those types of students to be able to have conversations with those individuals. You're learning both ways. We're able to impact right. you know, our culture on them and they're able to impact their culture on their students. And you know, in my opinion, and from a, from a bird's eye view, that's already an amazing experience in and of itself. So one of the things that uh, we read on your website is uh, that you, you wrote that um, connection with nature can be therapeutic and I know for for me, um, anything therapeutic is something that's been necessary over the last year and some change. Um, talk to me about some of the ways that nature has helped you during these challenging times. I want to see if you can uh, impact us in a way that we can take on some of those things as well. In challenging times, we are indeed in. So it's... Um... You know, I, I look at nature in a couple of different ways, but I should tell you that I normally I'm an introvert. That's, that's my sort of personality type. If, if there is such a thing, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. So <laughs> and like many and this is not I'm sure I can't tell today. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people that go into science, you know, the, you might get a lot of introverts in that population. Um, so you're always processing stuff kind of behind the scenes. And I think we do this anyway, regardless. But I, I really do think our brains, but more specifically, our subconscious just really needs a break from all of that processing. And I, this is what nature does for us, is it actually helps put that to rest, but only if you can relax when you're in nature. And it's not going to help. If you're checking emails while walking on a trail, although you're still on the trail at least, but you know, I really think your brain can heal itself from all that we've bombarded it with over time, but they need downtime to do that. So an important component for me of being in nature is kind of just actually doing nothing or at least, you know, as close as you can get to that, just walk around, sit in one spot and literally do absolutely nothing other than enjoy being in that space, listening to those sounds, looking about. But I think that long lost art of doing nothing, you know, is, is something I want to bring back because I think it's absolutely the best mm -hmm. thing for us in our busy lives is to make space for nothing at all. Um, and so, this is for me what I get out of nature is I don't I don't plan very well. You know, I'll say, yes, I'd like to visit a national park or I'd like to go to a city park or whatever. But outside of that, I really don't have a lot of planning. I just like to show up and see what it tells me to do. Or I might look at a map. 
because, you know, I'm a map geek, so I love maps. I might look at a map and say, well, here's a big green polygon over here. I definitely want to go check that out, even though I have no idea how far in distance that could be. So that's normally how I approach it. And I, so, um, you know, people will sometimes ask like, oh, what did you do on the weekend? And I love being able to say I did absolutely nothing at all. And I loved every bit of it. Yeah. Um, of course, not everyone you know, feels that this is a wise use of time, but I certainly do. Um, <laughs> because I think it's amazing what your brain can accomplish when you do nothing. It, it can settle, you know, it processes everything it needs to. It lets you breathe a bit. And we don't realize this, but, you know, we're really controlled by our subconscious. So everything from what we buy, what we do, where we go, all those decisions in some way have been made for us. Our brain has already processed that in advance. It just makes the choices easier when it comes mm -hmm. upon you. And so to not clutter that processing, you know, nature is the healer. But uh, I think we're, and we evolved with nature. So if you're sitting out there and just listening to the wind go through the leaves, that is something that has been with humans for millennia. It has helped us long before mm -hmm. we have ever realized. And we need to get back to that place. You know, this is why it's so fun when you're a kid and you're outside and you have no plan. You're just running around what they call playing. And so we, <laughs> right, need, to be, exactly. we need to do more of that, you know, so... I tend to wander about, you know, in nature. I don't really have like, okay, I'm going to do this five mile hike and I've got one hour to do it and let's go. Mm -hmm. That's, you're not going to see me on that hike. <laughs> it's going to take me probably a lot longer. <laughs> I may not even make it. I'll just come right back because I found a cool slug or a butterfly. <laughs> so I, I like having, you know, little to no direction and uh, no plans, but just to be in nature, I think is wonderful. I hear that the the power of stillness I think is yes. is kind of what we're talking about there the ability to find calm in in that stillness and in, in that nothingness I I 100% agree I'm gonna see if we can add that to the list of benefits in the workplace see if we can fit that <laughs> in <somewhere. laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, when when you're on the go and when you're not as still um, in your current role as director of conservation and science and policy out at the National Parks Conservation Association. What, what is it that your, um, pardon me, what's your primary focus in that particular role? So probably a, a better title for me is really the broker for science at MPCA. And all that really means is, you know, I'm kind of the jack of all trades kind of guy. Now, and I see a lot of students actually wanting this as a career, which is to know about science, to be educated and trained in science, but find a job where you don't actually have to do the science. You just have to find other people that do the science. <laughs> this is largely part of my job. So, you know, MPCA is in the business of protecting parks from threats. And so part of my job there is to help support our advocacy with the relevant science, you know, to empower it. But honestly, most of that time, if I am asked for a specific kind of, you know, science support, it could be anything from light pollution to hydrology to wildlife corridor establishment, you name it, it's very interdisciplinary. So chances are, I didn't go to school for any of those things. You know, if we're talking about <laughs> nuclear power plant, is leaking, you know, radioactive isotopes in a water column that is not in my field of expertise. So a lot of the time, my job is to find the people who know. And this is where, Joe, that all that experience from high school all the way to present day of talking to humans has come into play because I am not scared to reach out. I'm no longer scared to ask for help. And that's a, it's a very tough barrier for, for students to ask for help. It's terrifying, you know, and it can be in the classroom. It can be at home. It can, you know, anywhere to ask for help feels like weakness when actually it's a strength. 
If you are able to ask for help, you are a stronger individual. And so I had to overcome a lot of that and just let go of the fear of being seen as, you know, not prepared or not educated enough or whatever it may be and just reach out. But I was always pleasantly surprised with the response. You know, invariably, people want to help you. People want to empower you. I think this is in our nature. And so, you know, this is what I do as my job is to bring internal and external expertise, preferably in the sciences, to empower specific campaigns and projects we work on. But that's kind of it in a nutshell, is just kind of like harboring this interdisciplinary world of science and then trying very hard to make the connections without actually knowing much about any one of those disciplines. But <laughs> here's the benefit is I get to hang around with cool, knowledgeable scientists and, you know, practitioners and leaders in conservation. So that whole desire of me being around these people of influence, that's now become part of my job. I have to be around them in order to do the job. And to do the job, I have to be around them. So it's this wonderful cycle. But I'll admit that, you know, I feel extraordinarily privileged to be in that realm because not every job is like that. You know, this is, I've had many jobs in conservation. So this is not, this is not the kind of job you get coming out of the gate, but you most certainly can build a really amazing and strong path for yourself by continuing to brace, embrace that human connection and, and then let people help you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're miles down the road and you look back and you're just in shock. So when I look at what I'm doing at NPCA, I have over 400 national park units to help support and protect, which also means perhaps traveling to or learning about, you know, visiting. I mean, that's a remarkable kind of career. And so I am in incredibly yeah. grateful to MPCA for choosing me. I mean, they, they I'm sure had many other good choices, but they took their chance <laughs> and uh, it's now been seven years. So I guess, I guess they like me. Sounds like the right decision. In, in my, from my opinion, it sounds like the right decision. Let me ask you this, how do we get students uh, started? How do we get them more involved so that that curve to, to where you are right now becomes a little bit shorter? How do we make that a little bit right. easier, getting them started early? What are, what are some ways we get them involved in some of those conserva uh, conservation efforts? So for starters, we have to help students learn how to hang out with other humans. And that is through a number of means, you know, become a volunteer, help a graduate student. That's like a really hidden gem right there. Look for an internship, but find something that puts you physically and literally side by side with someone in conservation. And it doesn't matter at what level, but that's where you're going to learn. That's where the magic is going to happen. I think the greatest threat you know, to this new generation of conservation leaders is that they are not being shown how to engage with humans. It's not something, you know, you really learn in school. And because of the fears that we normally have about interacting with other people, we just, you know, kind of re retract from that. And the internet's not going to get us the job. So, you know, where's that required class on how to say hello to a world respected scientist that you see at a conference, you know, where's the required class to help you boost your confidence when, you know, you walk into the halls of a Smithsonian museum. Those are things that are hard to learn. So first and foremost, start hanging out with people who are doing those jobs and just be in that environment. And you can just be a fly in the wall. Quite literally, you will learn so much from watching others. And that's kind of how it started for me, you know, from high school on. I've always, you know, whether it was across a classroom, 
you know, in the landscape or at some seminar. I'm always watching someone who's doing something that's pretty cool and amazing. And that keeps me driven. Um, so I think also there, there, there are two things that conservation students need to do and they need to do them well to succeed. And it's just be able to write and be able to talk to humans. As far as the content of your science discipline or whatever profession you go in, I think that's really, you know, something you can always learn and train and gather. But writing well and public speaking and or just communicating, those are the two absolute fundamental keys to success in any profession, especially for science, because ironically, Many people go into science to avoid humans, right? And to work with animals and to be in nature. Right. <laughs> but then you get there and you're like, oh, I have a supervisor. I have all these meetings. I have this report to write. I have, you know, a presentation to make. It's unavoidable. So my message mm -hmm. for students is, first of all, don't worry so much about it. You know, you've got a lot of time. We all have time to work on these things. Don't rush. But secondly, don't be afraid to jump out of your comfort zone. It's gonna happen whether you like it or not, because getting your first job, <laughs> or maybe it's your second or third, there's always that awkwardness in the beginning, and you get over it, you know? You remember that first day maybe going to elementary school, you're terrified, you didn't wanna go in that classroom, but you look back and you're like, oh, that was kind of fun. So we just have to get over these fears. Um, but I really think that those are kind of some of the the fundamental, you know, messages and lessons I would, I would like to share with students is just take it easy on yourself. Don't worry about things so much, you know, just, uh, it's okay to be in that uncomfortable space and, you know, put yourself there. Cause if you're not there, you're probably not going to learn something new. Just go with it. Go with the flow. Thank you for sharing. Um, I have one more question here for you before we wrap up. Um, should be a good one here for you, but may may take a little bit of time to, to think and process on. Um, what has been your most memorable experience abroad, whether in the study of our program or in your tenure with uh, the World Bank? But what has been some of your um, most memorable experiences uh, out of the country? Well, I, I really would share that those are probably earlier in my career, if you will. And those were short-term field projects. And again, these were things that, you know, an opportunity came forward and I was ready for it. I was just brave enough to say, I wanna go for it. And they actually happened for me. So I'll share some of them with you. One is, you know, where I grew up, we had a local zoo and that was a big place of inspiration for me. And the zoo was putting together this binational effort to conserve sea turtles in Mexico. I would never have thought in a million years that I'm going to end up in Mexico on the beach working with sea turtles, but that actually happened. And here we are, you know, the U S team working with the Mexican team. And I did this for, two biological seasons for sea turtle nesting. Unbelievable experience in life. For most of the time, you're hanging out on a beach with these really cool people who are also science-minded. But then you have the crazies, you know, you have the cook in the kitchen that's just nonstop laughing and telling jokes all the time. And you've got mm -hmm. the guy who brings in supplies and he brings his family and you play with the kids and like all of it like all of the collective experience of working in the field with an endangered species is just mind blowing for me. Then after that, you know, just other ones came up that I decided let's go for it. So I'm, you know, trapping wolves in, in Minnesota with a really amazing team of people. Wow. Again, I had never even been, you know, in snow. I went from South Texas, and I showed up in northern Minnesota in January, you know, in blue jeans and like tennis shoes, like completely unprepared. 
And I'm sure these guys saw me get off the plane and they thought, oh man, this guy's not going to make it. And, uh, but, you know, somehow I did. So, but that's another remarkable experience is being with a team that's now you have these animals in your hands. It's very kind of hardcore in a sense of dealing with the process of handling animals. Um, and then others, other opportunities, you know, came up. I, I had the fortune of working with Fish and Wildlife with Endangered Species on site, you know, in Texas. And then, of course, my last was doing my dissertation where I'm literally in the field, you know, surrounded by black rhino and lion and elephant. But it, it, again, it wasn't those species and landscapes per se, but it's the people that were with me. I was at a research camp for my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So then you have all these other researchers. One of them's doing genetics, another one's doing this right. and that. That's the experience that you always remember. Like I remember, you know, when the rats are running out of the kitchen because they ran out of food <laughs> and everyone's screaming and, you know, we, <laughs> those are the things. It's not like, oh, I gathered this data and completed a dissertation. No, it is the rats in the kitchen running around, waking everybody up in the middle of the night. But that's kind of the beauty of <laughs> working in the field is that you come across all these bizarre situations that are so memorable. So I would say, you know, mm -hmm. the things that were most important for me were not actually jobs, even though, of course, I love my job. Um, but it was the experience of being in nature and being able to share that with others who were also kind of like-minded. And together, mm -hmm. you know, that unity, that camaraderie, there's something about that that is just super magical. And I, that's why I love organizations like the Student Conservation Association that, that positions students to work in national parks or in wildlife refuges. You know, there are a lot of groups that focus on getting kids outdoors and they're doing it for a good reason. It works. That is the formula, you know? Get outside, play, do a whole lot of nothing. And then when you have some education experience, <laughs> go out and actually work on a project, you know? A lot of people need help. So I look back, when I look back on those things, I really just look back on those small collective experiences with those teams in the field because that's that's what I treasure the most. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, Ryan, thank you so much for spending some time with me, answering my many questions and, you know, playing on my, my childhood imagination. Uh, I really, really appreciate it and, and hope everyone enjoys the, the episode as much as I have been being a part of it with you. Um, are, are there any ways that um, students can connect with you, our staff members can connect with you, or any listeners can connect with you on how to get more involved with uh, the MPCA? Absolutely. Um, well, MPCA has a large number of amazing opportunities for engagement. And this is both kind of at a national level, but also at a local level. But the thing that I would like to to do is actually make myself available to your students, to your audience members, because it's one thing to go to a website and look at links and think, you know, here's some cool opportunities. But I really do think it is a completely different experience just to have a few minutes with a human and talk to them about these things. Because what I have learned in that process is I'm able to kind of help get the question out of you that is in there somewhere that you really want to ask, but isn't being asked because you may not know, you know, what you want to do. And those are the students that I think I can help the most. Um, and it's okay not to know what you want to do. There, there's, I think, a misconception about that, that we shouldn't put so much pressure on ourselves, but let nature guide us, you know, just get outside. Something will click. Yes. Hang around a bunch of humans. One of them is yes. going to, you know, inspire you. <laughs> but I also tell people, like, the more things you do, it, it's kind of hard to know what you want to do in life, right? It's like, but it's easy to know what you don't want to do. So the more opportunities you have, the more things you can check off the list 
and that's super valuable. Oh yeah. But I I pledge to you that you know I I would happily make myself available uh, to to communicate and share with your students, um, and that's the best way to go about it. But I'm also you know going to encourage any MPCA participation as well. Well, do me the the favor of leaving us any contact information that you can for for people to engage with you, and and that'll be the best way for us to wrap up there. Absolutely, I will certainly do that, Joe. And thank you though for for this opportunity. Honestly, I I, I love sharing, but you know it's it's kind of reliving a lot of the the fun times I had. But there's still a lot to do. You know, for the both of us, there's, sure. there's a ton of adventures out there waiting. And uh, I want students to realize that a, a career isn't kind of like a, a thing you get in the end. It just stays with you. You know, it's a living thing that you, you, you take with you. And if you're lucky, again, there's no such thing as luck, right? <laughs> if you are prepared and ready to take the opportunities in front of you, that's a good journey to be on. So, you know, so get ready. Ryan, thank you so much. I couldn't have wrapped this any better. Um, I appreciate you so much for your time. Um, and I do look forward to um, our students getting to experience you this summer and hopefully to be able to do a follow-up with you on that uh, soon thereafter. Excellent, Joe. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. This has been another amazing episode of Behind the Biography. Thank you to our guest, and thank you so much for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in our programs, please visit our website at envisionexperience.com. Also, we'd love to hear from you. So check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and even LinkedIn, and tell us what you think at Envision Experience.